Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. All right, so today we got another rapid fire. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 questions that I do think I'll be able to get through today. Um, Some of them are more in-depth. Some of them are really brief and quick, which will make this easy to do a rapid fire because I probably will only get on long tangents on a couple of them. But um, before I dive into this, excuse me, um, before I dive into this podcast, I wanted to say a couple things. The first one thing I wanted to say is thank you for sending in these questions. Thank you for the engagement. Um, Thank you for everybody who joined the Boom Boom Performance private forum uh, last month. Um, I said it was only going to be open for the month of September, but I'm feeling generous. It's October now. We're going to keep it open. I love the interaction. Um, I honestly, true... Honest to God, it was not going to open this back up. It wasn't going to be an ongoing free thing um, because usually you have to get an ebook. Um, but the reality is, is I'm going to engage with people just as much as I was before. And I'd rather have more people in there engaging, talking, asking questions, getting interaction with them for the podcast and really just building this community. So if you do a uh, few rules with this, if you do like the podcast, you do enjoy informative content, you love coaching, you love training, you love nutrition, and you want to be part of a positive community, click the link in the description, join the group. I will accept you in um, the big thing there is it's a positive community. I don't want any negativity. I don't want any hatred. I don't want any selling. There's no marketing in there. It's really just a place to ask questions, interact, and get a, kind of a first come, first serve for Q&As because I will drop statuses in there for the, the podcast question, uh, Q&A uh, question and answer podcast episodes. So you will have first opportunity um, to jump in there. So if you want to join the community, click the link in the description. The other thing I wanted to mention was really just saying thank you for the engagement. Um, I really do appreciate all the love and support and just people reaching out, honestly, like people reaching out through email, through DM on Instagram and just saying like, thank you. And saying they listen to the podcast. They love the podcast. Um, We've had a a, a couple really strong months, um, really over the entire summer into this fall has just been really strong with podcast listeners, downloads, people engaging with me back on the things that happen on the podcast and on Instagram. And I'm just really appreciative. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be um, uh, kind of a light in the coaching space and really just help educate and help do the right thing and do things the way I believe most coaches should and, and honestly communicate back. I had somebody shoot me an email today thanking me for the content and for the fact that I answered their DM with an in-depth personalized answer. And it always comes to my surprise that there's these quote-unquote influencers out there trying to quote-unquote influence people, but they're they're not willing to sit down and have a conversation. It kind of blows my mind. It's like if you're going to put yourself in that position, 
you should be the first person that wants to engage, wants to communicate, wants to connect, wants to have a conversation. It's the only way we're going to help. So um, I'm always responding to people. Sometimes it takes me a little bit longer than I would like. Um, but I, I do make a point every week to sit down and get on my DM and answer people back, shoot people emails back. And, and I just love the engagement. I love the connection that we're getting. So um, to everybody out there listening who does engage with me, does message me, does email me, does ask questions, anything, Thank you. I'm grateful. Um, I, I really appreciate your support. And if you want to continue that support, I would love a five-star rating and review on iTunes if you have not done so yet. Um, in fact, let's do this. If you have listened this far into the intro, I appreciate you enough to say that I will give you a shirt if you give the best rating and review. So we're going to give one shirt away. Um, I, I need to do this more regularly. Um, I want to get these shirts out there. So we have a few options for shirts. we got the Boom Boom shirt, uh, the Seinfeld style Boom Boom shirt. We're making new shirts. The ones for men are sick. They have the, uh, I don't know what it's called. It like kind of curves. So like the front and the back are a little bit longer and it kind of bends in the side. It's that like it's not the fishtail because I think the fishtail is like the hard right angle. Um, but we have these shirts now. They say Boom Boom Performance in a small font on the, the left side of the chest. And then they say, um, I think the ones you would get say Team Boom Boom Performance or Fit by Choice. So we have a couple options. Um, the coaching ones are obviously for us. But if you want a shirt, leave us a five-star rating review. I'm going to pick one review, the best rating in review. This goes live on October 11th. So you will have until October 25th. So not next week, the week after, because this the podcast iTunes reviews take some time to upload. So you will have until the 25th, and I will announce the winner. Um, you will then email us, and we will send you a shirt. So without any further ado, just wanted to say thank you, say I'm grateful, and then shout out, give us a rating and review. I will give you a free shirt. Um, and now we can jump into this rapid fire Q&A. Question number one from India Benjamin. Do you think that we all have a set weight where we are most genetically comfortable at? Yes, I do think so. Um, I actually answered this on my story and said, I think so. Yes, I think we have a body fat settling point. And she responded and said, more detail, please. So I said, listen to the podcast, please. <laughs> so we're going to dive into this Uh there, there's a couple theories on this. There's the body body weight set point, and then there's the body uh, settling point, the body fat settling point. So they're very, very similar. I mean, essentially, at the end of the day, we have this settling point where our body feels more com most comfortable at from a weight and or body fat perspective. Um, and this is actually one of the reasons. One of the reasons I, I do believe this is true, and then like it was based on a recent uh, study that James Krieger did you'd have to be inside of his research review to actually read the full text, but I think he's talked about it on, on content publicly a little bit. But he basically had a contest prep client where weighted apparel all the way through their contest. So what they did is they started a contest prep, they created a deficit, and he started uh, losing weight. As he lost weight, he replaced that weight with weighted apparel. And what this did is kind of mask the fact that he was at his body, he, he was... He was masking the idea of him being at a body fat settling point, a body weight settling point, while he continued to lose weight. So basically, imagine it like this. You lose two pounds, add two pounds to the weighted apparel. Two more pounds, add two more pounds. Two more pounds, add two more pounds. So he was able to get through a full contest prep. I don't know how long his contest prep was, but being that they are in the evidence-based crowd, I assume it was longer than the average 12-week. You know, it's probably 16 to 24 weeks long. 
and he was able to do the entire contest prep, get on stage, shredded. I saw the guy shredded um, without dropping calories whatsoever. So he got to stage with minimal metabolic adaptation, minimal downsided uh, biofeedback effects, no caloric restriction besides the initial pull when getting into the prep, which is minimal, if anything at all. Um, and I can almost guarantee that allowed him to, I'd have to see his past preps to be able to see this, but I can almost guarantee that allowed him to maintain muscle better because he was consuming so many more calories than normal while being on a prep. So really cool things on that. And then what he did on the way out is he reversed the pro process. So as he reversed dieted and reversed cardio and did all those things, he basically reversed while using the weighted apparel still. And he was basically able to avoid all metabolic adaptation. Um, I mean, like cravings, mood, performance, like all these different biofeedback markers were basically non-existent in a negative way. Like there was no negative feedback from those feedback points, those biofeedback markers. Um, and it was due to the weighted apparel. And it makes sense. I mean, at the end of the day, there's like, there's plenty of things connected to the brain and the brain is perceiving how this process works based on your body weight, your total body fat. And if you can mimic that with weighted apparel, you're kind of tricking the system. So really, really cool study. Um, obviously it's very hard to replicate. Um, this dude owned his own gym. He was an online coach slash gym owner and a contest prep athlete. If there's anybody on this planet that can commit to wearing weighted apparel every day, that's the guy. So it, it's, you know, and even for me, like I, I run a fitness and nutrition business. I work from home and it would even be difficult for me to wear a weighted apparel all day. So little things you can do is if you go on a few walks every day, you can throw on a weighted vest and try to do that. I have a client right now that we're masking her weight loss with uh, a, a weight vest because um, she goes on multiple walks throughout the day. She's an online coach. So she has, she's seated quite a bit. Um, it's the same thing with me. I wear a weighted apparel in the morning. I haven't the last couple of weeks. I've been sick. So I'm trying to take it easy, but it's a really easy way. Um, I think that helped me a little bit with my photo shoot prep and, and so on and so forth. But um, back to the, the the actual question, do you think that we all have a set weight? I, I do, but I also believe that we're able to get out of that through proper periodization. So essentially, we have this kind of place where our body likes to go when we get too comfortable. So for me personally, my weight likes to set around 170. Um, now... If I am active, if I make sure my NEAT is high, if I periodize my nutrition, if I do things right, I will actually stay around like 163, but I'll be like really lean. Like that's where I'm at right now. And I can see my abs fully in the morning, midday, I can still see them, but I'm not like shredded. But that's not my natural like set point. Right now, I'm not trying to gain weight. I'm not trying to push my calories through the roof. I'm not trying to diet. I'm actually trying to reset my genetic set point. So I'm trying to reset my body fat settling point. Um to be at this stage. Before surgery, it was set a little bit higher because I was comfortable being a little bit fluffier. Um, as I was pushing for more PRs in the gym, I was pushing for more uh, muscle mass and I didn't really care about body fat and I would just do a cut again. But once I had surgery and I kind of reverse recomp, so I lost muscle, gained fat, that kind of just threw my body for a loop. I went right back to that 170 and no matter how much I ate and how little activity I did, I basically sat at that point all post-surgery until I started getting really active and trying again. So we all kind of have this place where our body goes to. Now, the way to avoid this is to obviously do a cut through this. And you will you will see too. So for some people, they sit just above this, which is really common. So you'll see somebody whose natural genetic set point might be 180 pounds. And the first 10 pounds, they lose quick. Their comfort, so their genetic comfort is like 
more of a range than an actual number. So really, it's like 170 to 180. So you'll see them be able to cut that first 10 pounds, and when they hit 170, they just get stuck. For some people, it's months. For some people, it's weeks. It takes one tweak, they're through. Two tweaks, they're through. Eight tweaks, they're through. It re- it's so individual. But it's usually a range. I don't like the body fat settling point. I like the body fat settling range better because I do find it is a range. Now, once they get to this range, this is where periodization comes into play. We have to purposely plan an aggressive deficit, so really drop calories to get through that, then plan diet breaks, take our time, shift back and forth between deficits and maintenances. Um, For some people more frequently, for others it's more of like an aggressive cut for a solid four weeks than a one to two week maintenance. For some people it's even like, hey, we're going to get after this and you're going to do like one refeed, maybe two every one to two weeks and we're going to go hard and it's going to be 12 weeks long of deficit and then we're going to follow that up by a full four to six week block of maintenance and then we're going to get back in the deficit. Um, And it actually takes that cut, maintain, cut, maintain, cut, maintain, back and forth process to try to reset reset and establish that um, set point. I, I did a podcast with uh, Will Grazion and Christopher Bearcat, two of my good friends, really good coaches, and we did a roundtable and we had this discussion and, and Will used a really good example. And I, I have a couple clients that are examples of this as well, where you do somewhat of a matador study where it's kind of like one to two weeks in a deficit, one to two weeks maintenance, keep going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And sometimes it starts on the um, higher ratio of deficit. So you might actually start with a three to one ratio, three weeks in a deficit, one week maintenance, and we, we lose a bunch of weight. Eventually it goes to like two weeks in a deficit, one week at maintenance, right? And then you go to like 10 days in a deficit, one week at maintenance. And then you keep doing this juggling back and forth. And what you're doing is you're actually training the metabolism to be able to maintain these new lows at a higher caloric set point. So example in more detail, we go three weeks in a deficit, right? We drop three pounds. Now we go into maintenance and we maintain that three pound loss at maintenance calories. Then we drop back into a deficit, lose three more, come back to maintenance. We maintain that six pound now total weight loss at a higher maintenance. And as you go down, you make the ratio of deficit to maintenance um, more equal, and then eventually more maintenance than deficit periods. But what you're doing is you're training the body to maintain this new body fat settling point, which is lower than it was before. So it really comes down to proper periodization. It comes down to smart coaching, smart nutrition programming, um, and patience. And you got to be willing to kind of toggle these phases of dieting back and forth. Um, it's not cutting and bulking. It's more like cutting and maintaining um, until eventually you can just maintain and that maintenance as that a new set point. So even for me right now, we did the photo shoot. I purposely didn't get shredded. Um, I got to a comfortable, like I, I did that post sustainable for shredded and I might get shredded again for a photo shoot um, down the road. But right now the smartest thing for me to do was let me cut for a solid, you know, 12 to 16 weeks get to a point that is sustainably lean, like a lean where I feel confident taking off my shirt anywhere, um, but not so lean that I feel like shit. Um, Did I want more calories by the end of it? Absolutely. But was my biofeedback for? Not at all. So we got to this point. Now we've reversed out of it successfully. Um, I ate intuitively last week because I was sick, but I mean, we've brought my calories up quite a bit. Um, I mean, I think I've added 85 grams of carbs to my day and I haven't gained a pound. I mean, I fluctuate up a pound. Um, but it's like up a pound, down a pound, up a pound, down a pound. Same weight as I was 
on, uh, on for the photo shoot. So things are going really well. So now that I've done that, now I'm going to just focus on maintaining for honestly as long as I can, probably three, four months, um, and just focus on performance. Uh, I don't care about getting huge. I don't care about cutting leaner. I'm just going to stay right here and try to reestablish this new body set point. And then once I truly feel like this is set in stone, then I might say, hey, like let's try to get leaner this time. Or, hey, like I'm ready to gain some size, but I'm going to do it slow because now I'm at a lean point that I can successfully sustain long term. So um, in, in this whole process that I'm talking about could go a million different ways depending on the individual, their metabolic history, their dietary history, their training, their goals, their body type, so on and so forth. Becky underscore Jackson underscore. What are your thoughts on body types? That's kind of funny. I just mentioned body types especially endomorphs. Do you think there is validity in the idea that they have a slower metabolisms, insulin resistance, and might need to be lower carb, higher fat compared to an ectomorph, ecto or mesomorph? So these are somatotypes. Um, and this is basically the idea that there's ecto, meso, and endomorphs. Ectomorphs are thin, lean, skinny, tall. And uh, mesomorphs are more athletic build. So they're not necessarily tall or short. They're kind of average height, um, stockier build, more muscle, generally pretty lean. Um, and then they're, that's, they're kind of like the ideal body, right? And then the endomorph is uh, just large. This is where we see heavier set individuals, more body fat, um, so on and so forth. Now, I don't I don't buy into it much. I do believe that there's body types. And I think you can look at these body types and you can actually somewhat judge where their macronutrient prescription needs to go, um, how their training is, possibly even determine an idea, an estimate of where their hormonal profile might actually be. However, um, I don't think that it is written in stone. I don't think it is the end-all be-all because if you looked at me when I was a child, you would have assumed I was an endomorph. I was always ch chubbier, lost a little bit of weight when I started playing soccer quite a bit. But still the heavier set kid on the team. Um, and then I had some injuries in high school, gained weight, definitely an endomorph. And then I got lean and muscular. And people now would look at me and assume I'm a mesomorph. So I just kind of destructed that theory, essentially. Um, but what I would say is I do think you can look at these people. Like, so you said, especially endomorph. So if you look at endomorph, do I think that they might have a slower metabolism? Not usually, actually. Um, heavier set people, I think this is a confusion people have. A lot of them actually have a higher metabolism. Um, they are taking in more calories. They have more weight to move. They sometimes have more, a lot more muscle mass than you would assume because they're carrying more weight. Um, the problem is, is that just that they overeat. Your metabolism is going to adapt up and down. So the more you eat, the, the faster your metabolism works. Problem is they're overeating, especially high, highly palatable foods. So if you change their macronutrient ratio and keep their caloric set point at the same place, for example, drop their fats, keep their carbs, increase their protein, their metabolism is probably not going to change too much. And they're probably going to lose a lot of weight, right? Um, so I, I don't know if I buy that they have a slow metabolism because and there's a lot of underweight people that have very slow metabolisms, right? Like, but um, that's not the point. Uh, I would I would probably scratch the idea of endomorphs at, or I mean metabolisms because I think any somatotype can have a slow metabolism. They can also have a fast metabolism. I think that's much more of a uh, stress related, training related, muscle tissue related, and uh, environmentally related. So um, epigenetics and stuff like that. 
Um, insulin resistance, yes, absolutely. Because if you look at an endomorph, it's not that they are a quote-unquote genetic endomorph. It's because they have more body fat on their body. The more body fat you have on your body, the more likely you are to be insulin resistant and have poor insulin sensitivity. Um, therefore, a lower carb approach might work better because of that insulin ratio issue. Um, but that has nothing to do with being an endomorph genetically. It has everything to do with bad body fat. You can be an ectomorph and have poor insulin sensitivity because you might be tall and thin, but you might carry a lot of body fat on your body, um, especially around your midsection, right, as a male. So there's that. Um, so I, I don't buy into the body types too much. I think all those can change. However, I do think you can look at somebody and kind of judge what they should be taking in. For example, I just, I'm working with a guy that is tall and skinny, wants to build muscle. I'm assuming he has great insulin sensitivity. We're going to push his volume and crank his carbs up. I have people that are overweight that, uh, that are heavier set, like pretty big that you would consider an endomorph that I'm approaching with a lower carb approach. Is that because lower carbs are better? Not really. We just need less calories and it's easier for them to stay satiated and not be triggered to eat more food if we drop carbs and keep protein and fats higher. So I think it's less about the somatotype and it honestly kind of just comes back to caloric restriction in general and in, in lifestyle habits, really. Um, because all those, those somatotypes, those uh, genetic body type things can kind of intertwine and go back and forth and even shift over time. Because if you reset your body setting point, like I talked about in the last question, you can change from an endo to a meso to whatever. All right. This one is a little bit longer. This is from Kylie Miller or Siley Miller. Um, not quite sure. It's with a C. I haven't seen Kylie spelled that way. It's unique. C-Y-L-I-E. Um, all right. She said, hi. So I just discovered your podcast and I love them exclamation point. She's serious. Thank you. <laughs> I have been questioning my nutrition lately, so I wanted to get your input. I work a nine to five desk job, work out every day for about an hour and am also training for a marathon. Damn. I usually eat between 1400 to 1600 calories per day, but my question is how do I know how much is enough? I've been trying to increase a little bit, but because I haven't been feeling myself and haven't and have been tired lately. I want to feel healthy. Whoa, wait, let me go back. Hold on. Am I reading this wrong or did you type this wrong? I usually eat between 1,400 to 1,600 calories per day, but my question is how do I know how much is enough? I've been trying to increase a little, but because I haven't been feeling myself and have been tired lately. End of sentence. I want to feel healthy and not feel the need to eat less than I should. Okay, so I'm assuming you say I've been trying to increase little but haven't because you haven't been feeling yourself lately. Um, um, so the real question is, how much, how do I know how much is enough? So like it, it, at the end of the day, like you have to look at your energy output and I don't think you need to go through a crazy TDE calculator and, and Harris Benedict formula and all that stuff. Although you can, and if you want to get really detailed, you probably should. And if you do want to do that, go that route. Um, there's really two options that I can give you. Hire us for coaching, link in the description, or grab the nutrition, uh, excuse me, nutrition hierarchy, which is my free ebook that will explain all this to you. Also, link in the description um, of this podcast. But um, to give you advice, just in general, first and foremost, I don't even know your body weight, so I really can't tell you. But if you work a nine to five desk job, meaning you're sitting quite a bit, but you work out every day for about an hour, that kind of even itself out. 
but you're also training for a marathon. So what does that even mean? Are you running on top of this? Are you running just on the weekends? Like I have clients that are running for or practicing for uh, different marathons and they're, you know, they run once or twice a week and they do the rest strength training. And then I have other people that like to run every single day. So you need to, I, I would need way more information to give you a detailed answer. However, my honest opinion is that 1,400 to 1,600 calories per day is probably pretty minimal, probably not enough. You don't in here say that your goal is fat loss. Um, you train every day and run training for a marathon and you are pretty stressed um, and you've been tired lately and you haven't been feeling yourself. Those are bad biofeedback markers. So my advice is probably to take your calories upwards of anywhere between 16 to 20 times your body weight. Um probably around 0.4 to 0.5 times your body weight in fats, um, one to 1.2 grams per pound of body weight for car or for protein and the rest for carbs. So you can have a pretty high carb dominant diet. I think the lighter you are as a person, the more you should lean towards that 1.2, meaning if you're a female that's like 125 pounds or less, I would probably go with 1.2. I would say if you're a female that is 145 pounds or more, I would probably go with one gram per pound of body weight for protein. Um, the reason being is because I like to make sure that you're getting enough protein per meal to stay satiated and have muscle protein synthesis at an optimal rate. Uh, but in general, I just think you need more calories. Realistically, you should you should be increasing your calories linearly every two weeks until you reach a point where you are feeling way better in all ways. Your training is going better. Your mood is better. Your sleep is better. Um, and you're not gaining a ton of weight from it. The only way for you to not do this is to track all those things. Like I think people stray away from tracking everything because it seems like just like you're being anal or OCD. But the reality is, is if you don't track, you don't know. And what's not trackable is not progressible. So you should be tracking all these biofeedback markers and just increasing linearly probably every one or two weeks, you know, by five to 10% calories every, every adjustment until you get to a point where you just feel better, period. Lost in lifting, my man. What do you think about taking time away from hypertrophy training to resensitize the body? This is a really, really good question. This is something that Mike Israel has made pretty popular and it's kind of the idea that after a long time of following high-volume hypertrophy-based training, you should probably have a phase where you drop volume and kind of, quote-unquote, resensitize your body to that, meaning you stop training with high volumes, high reps. Um, so let's say you spend 12 weeks working in the 8 to 20 rep range. You would basically drop that off after 12 to 16 weeks, so three to four months of that. You would drop off and do a full block, so like let's say three to six weeks of low volume training. So maybe you're doing threes, sixes, and eights for your highest rep work. And you're doing that across the board. You might even cut down how many days a week you're lifting. So if you're doing five or six days a week, you might do four or five days a week. Um, I know Steve Hall is a big fan of this. I think he calls it the primer phase. And uh, there's not much literature on this. And I, I think the reason there's not much literature on this, and we're not going to be able to see much literature on this, and it probably will just stay an anecdotal theory is because I think the only people that we could see significant differences with in this style of uh, periodization is honestly advanced bodybuilders. And they're very unlikely to let you completely control what they do with their diet and training and lifestyle for the, your study because all they care about is their results. And I get that rightfully so. Um, shit, it'd even be hard for me to to get me to do a study. Actually, I would do a study because I think that would be really cool. Bucket list thing took off. So if there's any any researchers listening that need a test subject here in Washington, holler at me. I'd be down. Um, but the question. Um, 
Yeah, I think it is applicable to advanced individuals. So I have done something similar with this, and I have seen great results with two individuals. Um, shout out to Jeremiah and shout out to Kyle, uh, two of my guys who are looking to build as much muscle as possible. And we have used something similar to this. I actually put them on a training program to test some things, and they're seeing really good results, and they're liking it. Um, and it was basically we have these intermittent intensification phases. So we would spend – a block doing, so the blocks change in length. So we had a two-week block that was isometric. So we had a lot of isometric holds. We had a two-week block that was um, very, very long, slow negatives. Those were back-to-back. And then we have a resensitization phase, which is two to three weeks, um, which is just normal volume, normal training, strength training, kind of reset. And then we went into a very high-volume phase. So this is where we were hitting like metabolite training, like 20 rep sets, constantly reset phase. And we kind of cycled through these different things and they're seeing really good results. Now it's hard to determine. This is obviously just an anecdotal kind of self-experiment for myself. It's hard to tell if this is the resensitization because we are going through these different intensifications and we're creating a, a, a new stimulus that's a high stress uh, stimulus to them because they've never done it and then pulling them back and doing a normal style of training, staying in the eight to 12 rep range, um, and then going back to it. Or if it's because of this, uh, resensitization and we're sensitizing them to these intensifications because even in these other slow negatives, time under tension based phases and all pause reps and all these things, all the volume is way higher compared to the reset phases. So it very well could be that. But then the other thing with that is is the placebo effect, right? Are they just having fun because I have them in an experiment, which very well could be. Um, there's plenty of, of uh, experiences where people will just get excited and motivated to train harder. And they're amped up to hit the weights because they're doing something cool and new every couple weeks. They're in this little experiment. like. So it could be that. So it's hard to say, but I do think in advanced individuals, it makes sense. And I do agree with Mike Israel. I think it would be a good approach. I think you would have to like literally basically be above 10 reps for almost everything. Like it would have to be like very high rep training, very high volumes um, for a solid amount of time before you introduce a, re- uh, a reset phase, a primer phase to go back at it. And I don't know if it is the... It could be like I think the main mechanism happening with that is not necessarily that you are resensitizing your body. Um, I guess you could call it that. I mean, it just kind of depends on how you want to uh, define it. But I think really what's happening is I think after a while you actually get used to lactic acid and, and metabolite accumulation. Um, it's like a CrossFitter who does the assault bike all the time. They're very used. Their their lactate threshold is through the roof. They can get on there and fill their quads up way longer than I can. I'm not used to it. So they can handle that. So after, you know, 12, 16 weeks, we're beginning to adapt and build our tolerance to this metabolite and lactic threshold and accumulation, which has been shown to increase muscle growth directly. Um, And then we pull back and we basically don't do any of it. And that's the big key. You can't do any of it at all so that your body completely loses uh, the sense of being used to it. Um, through because you're doing low volume strength work and then when you come back to it it's something brand new again and you're not used to it and you have to go through that process of getting used to and adapting to that lactic uh, lactate and metabolite threshold accumulation again that would be my guess Um, there might be some nervous system uh, adaptation happening as well Um, the thing I will say 
about like resensitizing or changing up and kind of shocking the system. Um, Mass Research Review did a really good research review on a study that basically did something similar to this. They were testing different variances of changing training programs every block or every two weeks or every one week, and they didn't show any difference whatsoever as long as volume was equated. So it didn't matter if you change things up or you can't really shock the system is what it showed essentially. However, though there was a previous study that showed that shocking the system, quote unquote, doing something dramatically different did work, but it was only after like, I want to say it was like one to three years of not doing that training whatsoever. Um, so a good example of this uh, that I can think of personally is um, a client who comes to me that has done cross their entire life, never done bodybuilding, and then they completely let me change all their training into bodybuilding, they're going to see phenomenal results. It's brand new. They've never done it before. Um, a client who has always done bodybuilding and then shifted to CrossFit, probably going to see really good results because it's a brand new stimulus. Um, for me right now, I've done bodybuilding either an upper lower split or like a push pull legs for the last two to three years, nonstop. And during this reverse diet process of my photo shoot, I switched to a five to six day performance split. So I would say it's not CrossFit because I'm not doing CrossFit movements, but there is energy system training similar to that of a CrossFitter, meaning I am doing aerobic capacity work, anaerobic, and alactic. So a lot of lactic acid training, a lot of carries, a lot of um, quote-unquote functional bodybuilding, but more in the strength and performance realm. And it's very different than anything I've done in a long time. Um, and my reverse diet is going really well. Like I'm, I'm staying really lean. I'm, I'm feeling really good. Like my body's responding extremely well. And it's because I haven't done this. And the people they used in the study were Olympic weightlifters that they put on a bodybuilding program. Well, the Olympic weightlifters hadn't done anything besides Olympic weightlifting in years. And then they give them a bodybuilding program and they grew exponentially. So it makes sense. So I, I do think the resensitization thing is true. Um, those are my kind of thoughts of it. Um, I think that it works in two scenarios. I think, A, if you switch it up after like multiple years, I think you're going to see phenomenal results and I think it's worth it. Um, I, I think as far as resensitizing every three to four blocks or three to four months, I think it's good for advanced lifters who just need a novelty, novelty um, kind of stimulus where you're just changing things up for a mental purpose just to kind of take you out of the norm and or your training in this quote-unquote hypertrophy zone have has been like 12 to 20 reps and then you make a big drop and you are kind of priming the system to be able to to readapt to those metabolite and lactic acid thresholds so I, I hope that makes sense it's kind of rambling on my thoughts really emma beckera underscore where should my calories be for body recomp maintenance carb cycling high on training days etc um this is a good question. Uh, where should your calories be for body recomp? I think the best way to recomp for individuals is to find maintenance um, and do so with the minimal amount of fat needed to support hormones. So basically bring your fat up to a point where you feel good, you're sleeping well, and you have some flexibility in your diet. But like as soon as your hormones feel good, and you should know this because when you when your fats dip lower than needed, you just feel lethargic, you have brain fog, like your your hormones are kind of shit, you don't have sex drive. So bring it up slowly, like by like three to five grams in adjustment until you hit that point where you're like, okay, I feel better. Like I, I've taken people to competitions and they know like as soon as I hit 55 grams or 66 grams, I feel way better. So like find that zone. Once you hit that point, um, increase carbs until you find maintenance. So your protein is going to be around one gram per pound. Fat is going to be around probably 0.35 to 0.45, which is usually like the zone for people to have like the minimal effective dose. And then bring up your carbs until you hit 
maintenance. So now you're at maintenance. So you're probably going to bring this up until you gain a little bit of weight, right? You gain a pound or two and then pull your carbs back down so your calories are back at true maintenance because um, you're a lot of times you have to overshoot maintenance to find your maintenance uh, by a little bit. Um, once you find your maintenance, stay there with a higher carb protein approach um, and just focus on maintaining and then change your training, focus on nutrient timing and optimize your sleep. I think that's the absolute best way. So your calories should be set at maintenance. You can use carb cycling. You can use refeeds. You can do however you want to do it. At the end of the day, you're at maintenance. So it really doesn't matter as long as your weekly caloric intake is hitting that maintenance level. Um, and then I would probably have high neat. I would make sure I'm taking like two to three walks per day. Actually, probably like three to four walk, short walks per day just to get my knee up. You're training five days a week, heavy lifting, um, four or five days a week, heavy lifting, and you're sleeping eight hours a night. If you do that and you just make sure that your, your nutrient timing is on point, basically having higher carb, protein, low fat meals around your training and then more balanced meals throughout the day, um, and you are just keeping your routine. Most important part of nutrient time that people forget is not what time the meals are at or how many meals you're eating. It's that you repeat that every day. So if you like having four meals a day and you have them at 7, 11, 3, and 7, just make sure you do that every single day. That's all that matters because your circadian rhythm is going to adjust to that. But if you do those little things, I think that's the absolute best way to um, accomplish a recomp. Lauren... Lauren E. Pelton. I'm a female, 25 years old, 108 pounds, any reverse diet. I've been weighing myself daily, and for the past week, my weight has spiked up to 110 to 111 pounds. This spike up has happened before, but never lasts this long. I have felt heavy slash bloated as well. It may be water retention, hormones, monthly period, etc. I track my calories diligently every day and train four to six days a week. I don't believe I hit my maintenance calories yet because I still have mental food cravings and increased hunger about every two days. I just wanted to get your professional opinion on this spike up. What would you do in my situation? Thank you for the valuable information you teach every day. I love following your page and podcast. Thank you. I appreciate you following. So a few things here. Um, if it was your monthly period, it would go away after a couple days, um, week at most. So you know that. So it's probably not that. Um, I still have mental food cravings and increased hunger about every two days. I just want to get your professional opinion. So what I would do is I would give you a high calorie diet break and see what happens. I would track your mood. I would track your sleep. I would track your performance. I would track your cravings. I would track everything and just see what happens. Um, a few things that you can know about a refeed or diet break is if you take a diet break and you bring calories up, let's say to quote unquote true what you think maintenance is, and you do it for even a day, but let's say you do it for two to three days to get like something out of it. Um, for you, ideally it would be three or more days because we need to see a hormonal response and you have a very, very hard time seeing your weight drop back down after that diet break. That's a bad sign that your body isn't ready to be as lean as it is or to lose more weight. Um, so you probably need to gain a little bit of weight. Um, or your body hormonally is just in a place where it is not ready to lose weight. If you were in a healthy place, you should be able to take a diet break and your weight should fluctuate up because of water retention from eating more carbs, but it should actually drop back down pretty quickly and stay down. Um, that's a healthy situation. Um, so there's that. So I would probably test things with a diet break, see what happens, um, watch your cravings, watch your hunger, watch your sleep, and just see if your weight drops back down. If it doesn't, that tells me you're probably not eating enough. You probably need to gain a few pounds um, to actually be able to do that. I don't know how tall you are, but you said you're 108 pounds and your weight spiked up to 110, 111. It's really not a huge spike and you're so light. It's hard to say, you know, are you five, six or are you five foot? 
completely different aspects of what my response would be. Um, however, like I said, I would probably test things with the diet break, see if your weight comes back down, see if it improves everything. If you bring your calories up, everything feels better and your weight stays up a couple pounds, it just means that you need more weight on your body because we have to remember that hormones are not only regulated by fats that we consume through our diet, but also fats on our body um, and generally our weight as a total. So there's that. Um, I would probably do that. I would look at your food. Um, I, I do think that, you know, calories rule everything, but it's still worth looking at your food selection and seeing what you're consuming to see if we can optimize anything and possibly find some sort of uh, intolerance or food that your body's just not agreeing with or digesting properly. I mean, at the end of the day, your gut's tied to a lot of neurotransmitters um, that would go to your brain and could cause the cravings or the hunger, and it's connected to a lot of hormones. So although calories matter most, um, the hormones could be causing the hunger or cravings. And if we can solve that by fixing your gut, that would be a thing too. So there's a lot of things that I would would look at, to be honest with you, and I can't really tell you because it's such an individualized question. However, the best thing for you to do is is probably just take a diet break, see what happens. Um, Hopefully, weight comes back down. If it doesn't, it's probably a sign. Um, Yeah, and you might just need more calories in general. Jonathan Lutz. Three, how should a college football player structure his in-season nutrition? So he responded back to me again because I answered this on my DM, and he actually had some more details. So I'm going to pull that up right now um, because I said it really depends on the player. Um, But I gave him a general answer. So let's see what my general answer was, and then we'll go from there. Um, Okay. So my general answer was it depends on the individual's body fat percentage, muscle mass, uh, training per week, lifestyle, dietary history, joint health, etc. But in general, higher carbs plus moderately high protein plus moderately low fats. Then adjust carbs, sodium, water intake, and food selection around games in two days. So my general advice is like basically, usually for an athlete of that kind, I'm, I'm following a high carb, moderately high protein, and a moderately low fat diet, giving you at least maintenance, if not in a surplus, um, probably maintenance, and then increasing to a surplus on two days or game days by adjusting carbs up, making sure that you're consuming enough sodium daily and especially on game days, um, enough water intake. And then I would adjust those things around your your session. So you can even, uh, we talked about this on the last podcast with Jen, but you can weigh yourself before a game and weigh yourself after and see how much sweat you lose. And that can dictate how much water we know we need to intake while you're playing and how much sodium we need to intake to retain that water in order for you to stay better hydrated and fueled while training. Um, but he, he messaged me and said, I'm a college QB and have been into fitness and nutrition for three years and my body has become pretty accustomed to it. I have tracked macros for two years now. My body percent is somewhere between nine to 12% body fat. And I've been training for three to four days a week, full body. Uh, the issue I have been having the past year is constantly being food focused and want to fix this so I can focus on football and school and not so specific on my nutrition. Any recommendations? Also, lately I've been implementing a higher fat, higher protein with only carbs around my workouts. Could this strategy work? Could it work? Yeah. I mean, if you're consuming enough calories, it could work and there's people that can perform that way. However, I mean, study after study has shown carbs are the the primary fuel source. So I personally believe the best route for you to take, man, um, and I think actually this works really well for um, young athletes who stay lean pretty easily is just track calories and protein um, and then only track full blown macros or just add calories via carbs on your training days. So if you want to be less food focused and you want to have more flexibility, I think just know where your caloric maintenance is and hit that 
I wouldn't, I, I want to say plus or minus, but I would really say that or plus because <laughs> I don't want you to go below maintenance um, as an athlete. So I would probably stay like within 250 calories of your maintenance, really, I mean, within 500, let's say, um, if you're not too concerned about body composition. Um, so let's say your, your average or your, um, let's say your maintenance is 3,000 calories. I would stay between 3,000 and 3,500 calories every day. I would just make sure you hit your protein, um, probably about 1 to 1.2 grams per pound of protein, and then just let your carbs and fats kind of fluctuate based on your flexibility, what you feel like that day. Don't be too... Um, don't be too OCD about it. And then on, uh, game days, I would probably actually lower your fats on purpose to about 0.4 to 0.5. So that minimum dose, um, a little bit above the minimum dose since you're going to be at maintenance or into a surplus at this point, and then just drive your carbs up super high, um, because you're going to need those carbs for, for the games. I mean, that's the best way to go about it. And doing just calories and protein is probably going to leave you a little bit less food focused. Um, if you didn't have the food focus, quote unquote, concern, my advice would be different and it would probably be to have about a gram per pound of body weight for protein, have about 0.4 grams per pound for fat, maybe a little bit above that if you need to for flexibility and then crank your carbs up, have carbs in every meal, have clean, easy digesting carbs um, to make sure that your gut isn't wrecked when you're trying to play, and then really making sure you're focusing on water and sodium. And I would probably be having like five meals a day. And then on game days, if we feel like we need more nutrition, we're just implementing some intra-workout carbs through Gatorade or maltodextrin. Uh, I'm sorry, not maltodextrin, um, highly brain cyclic dextrin, waxy maze, just really anything um, that we can, um, and you could even do like, um, this is a trick some fighters use, but it's like orange juice, uh, highly branched cyclic dextrin, salt, and caffeine. Caffeine and salt increase the absorption rate of carbohydrates, and highly branched cyclic dextrin plus uh, orange juice is fructose and three other molecules of carbohydrates. So you're getting a wide variety of carbs, adding sodium, and adding caffeine, and your rate of how many carbs you can consume per minute, like how many carbs you can actually absorb per minute increases by like four. So usually it's like a gram per minute um, or something like that. I w I'd have to pull up a textbook to like really give you the exact, but I want to say it's a gram per minute. But when you add salt, it becomes two. When you add caffeine, it becomes three. When you add fructose, it becomes four. So now we can increase how many carbs we can take in and allow our blood sugar, our ATP, everything to drive higher during game days. So like when you're getting on the field, I'm, I'm tweaking your nutrition without a doubt. Um, but in general, I'd probably follow a high carb, high pro high protein approach. And, and I wouldn't change it much. Like you said, how should a football player structure in season nutrition? That's exactly how I would off season. The only difference would be is that I might lower carbs and raise fats on some days just to promote some metabolic flexibility. Um, I don't see the need to periodize a ton in an athlete who doesn't need to change their body composition, to be honest. If you're if, if the, the season just wrecks you neurologically, um, you might see some hormonal issues too. So we might want to deload training, take a complete break from the gym and from the field, get more sleep and, and change macros to optimize hormones and nervous system. But that's, you know, if you're staying in maintenance or a surplus all season, that might not happen. Um, and the best way to avoid that happening is to deload training. Adrian Frankling, two questions. Why am I so hungry on rest days? I have one rest day a week and I'm starving all day. Much hungrier than heavy wad days. Thoughts? Um, usually it's because the, the metabolic effect of training kind of has a delayed effect. So, I mean, I don't know how many people can relate to this. I'm sure a lot have a hard, hard workout, especially if you're doing like Metcon stuff. Last thing you want to do is eat. That's why people throw up. You don't have an appetite afterwards. Um, so that 
kind of has a delayed effect. Your metabolism spikes and you're burning calories after the fact so you wake up hungry. It's the same reason why you have a diet break or a refeed uh, one day and you're hungrier the next day because you spike your metabolism a little bit and, and you it's not just metabolism with the refeeds. I believe there's an effect with leptin and ghrelin that increase your, your hunger hormones and then you're hungry when you need to go back to your refeed, which is why I actually like having like a, a, um, a type of uh, tapering diet break. So starting high and actually tapering carbs down as the diet break finishes for multiple days. Um, but it's most likely just because you have a metabolic kind of like after effect from the workout. Um, and especially if you are carb cycling. So if you have higher carbs and a hard workout, now we're also increasing our hunger hormones through eating more calories and our metabolic system through training like a madman. And then we drop off in lower activity and lower intake the next day. We're asking for that. Second question, what are your thoughts on these vitamin new vitamin patches? I have digestive issues with many vitamins and they these look like a great alternative, yet do they work? Um, I don't know a whole lot about them, and I don't think there's enough research to really be able to say. What I will say is that they're most likely only going to work with fat-soluble vitamins because they can put oil, like a type of oil, inside the patch, and then the patch can absorb through that oil. Um, and there's fat on our skin um, and subcutaneous underneath the skin, so the vitamins are more likely to absorb through our skin that way. Um, so like things like vitamin D would work great. Um, Water-soluble vitamins, I'm not 100% sure. Um, uh, they probably would through uh, perspiration and sweat and stuff like that, but um, I, I couldn't really tell you. I think they – I could see them working. You said I have digestive issues with many vitamins, and these look like a great alternative. I could see it working for sure. Um, I just think there needs to be more studies done and more uh, trials, honestly, because there's really not much at all. It's a very brand-new type of thing. What's your opinion? Oh, this is from Carmen Spitzer. What's your opinion on liver hype? All the doctors and influencers now recommend eating liver. Um, eating liver has been like Eastern medicine. That's been in Asian culture thousands of years. So it's not really anything new. I think people are just catching on finally, which is really surprising because I've heard about this for probably over a decade. Um, liver is extremely nutrient dense. I mean, um, not only nutrient dense in a lot of like vitamin and minerals you'd find in other foods, but it's also nutrient dense in vitamins and minerals that are hard to find in other foods. Um, it has, it also has pretty low calorie in general. It has a good amount of protein, but it's pretty low calorie um, and it's packed with nutrients. So it's really just a low calorie food that has some protein, um, good protein, and then it has a ton of vitamins and minerals. Like it's very, very nutrient dense. Um, and you mentioned the question you said was a little bit longer and your concern there's two concerns most people have. It's one is um, if liver is high cholesterol, which I don't think that's an issue. Um, most heart disease-related cholesterol is actually produced in the body, and when you eat foods high in cholesterol, your body produces less to keep the balance. Um, it's kind of like sodium. If you eat higher sodium foods, your body regulates it really well. So that's not a worry. The other question that you mentioned was the fact that the liver is our toxin or detoxifier, right? So things go into the liver and we detoxify it. So people ask and are concerned, isn't it full of toxins? But the reality is, is your, your liver is there to detoxify. So it takes in toxins in these things, but then it gets rid of them. That's its job. So when you actually take out a, a liver of an animal to eat it, there are no toxins inside of it because it's done its job properly by removing those toxins. So you really don't have to worry about that at all. Um, and my opinion on it is I think it's great for you. If you can stomach it, go for it. I can't stomach it. Um, I've never 
been somebody that can eat that kind of stuff, I just will puke. <laughs> but um, I, I'm sure if somebody cooked it the right way, I'd probably be fine with it. I had a client that used to cook like livers and intestines and stuff like that. Um, she was from the Middle East and she would send us stuff and I just couldn't do it. Um, but it's good for you. It's definitely good for you. Becoming.nourished. How do you recommend navigating the holiday season in a cut from a periodization standpoint? Um, my first strategy would be periodize the entire year and don't cut during the holidays. Like for most people, I want to have their maintenance phases around the holidays so they can actually enjoy them and be more flexible during the holidays versus having to cut calories and be in deficit. Um, but if so, you would my my best answer would be take a step back, look at the entire year, and periodize it so that you're in maintenance and or lean gaining during the holidays, and then you are cutting outside of it. But I also have clients that are cutting right now going into the holidays because that's the way their year was periodized. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And in those scenarios, I'm just helping them navigate with refeeds and diet breaks accordingly. So there's probably going to be more caloric adjustments throughout the holiday season because we're going to need to kind of like quote unquote rob Peter to pay Paul, maybe add some intermittent fasting, maybe add a uh, impromptu diet break or refeed so we can have that flexibility for the social aspect and then get back to the cut. So we can kind of bounce back and forth between these things to make sure that we can successfully navigate through the holidays with more calories on those days. Um, that's probably going to be my best recommendation um, is just planning diet breaks and refeeds properly, to be honest with you, carb cycling, some intermittent fasting to kind of quote unquote rob Peter to pay Paul. Um, but if you can, if you're in a good place, um, or if you asked me this in January, I would say cut now and have that period of time to be your maintenance phase. Um, but yeah, and it's even a good time. Like if, if you're like, yeah, but I want to cut right now. I have weight to lose. You could even spend time using this as a maintenance as like a primer to get you ready for a better cut. So you can spend the winter, the holiday season preparing your body for a successful fat loss phase to start in January. And that's a smart approach too. Um, there's a really good strategy to periodize around that as well. So you might have deficit periods in there to make sure you're staying lean throughout the holiday, but it's not a one big deficit. Um, SS underscore Ludlow, nervous to try a bulk. How do you best ensure that muscle is built, not fat? Um, I would try building muscle at maintenance first. There's a lot more research coming out that shows you actually can build a good amount of muscle. Um, it, it's a lot slower, but it is steady muscle growth if you do it at maintenance. Um, so uh, my best advice there is honestly to find maintenance, um, add some intra-workout carbohydrates, um, properly design your nutrition prescription to hit good nutrient timing, um, have good food quality, have a higher ratio of carbs, so follow a higher carb, higher protein, lower, moderately low fat diet, um, probably have a good amount of NEAT, and have a really, really smart training program. If you can do that and optimize stress by sleeping enough and, and just staying positive and stuff like that, you probably can build muscle slowly. And then from there, if you still cannot build after trying that for a good amount of time, at that point, you can go into a surplus. And then we can really talk about like, okay, let's make sure we gain the, the least amount of fat possible, which is probably going to look like slow lean gaining. And then every once in a while doing a little mini cut to make sure we're kind of keeping that fat in check. Uh, Danny Kadove underscore fitness. Is there a difference if you try to hit daily macros or weekly macros? I think so. Um, I think technically if we look at science, we can say weekly caloric intake is what matters, so you don't have to worry about it. But I think science doesn't factor in lifestyle habits, hormonal habits, cravings, um, social, uh, daily performance in the gym, stuff like that. I think the, it's much better to hit daily macros, and the less you can just focus on weekly, 
the less fluctuations you have. Um, your circadian rhythm will probably thank you. Your metabolism and your insulin sensitivity will thank you because you have a solid routine of a, a constant source of energy coming in per day through each meal, meaning your meal timing is on point, but then also your daily caloric intake's the same, meaning your hunger cues aren't going up and down. Your energy cues aren't going up and down day to day. Um, you have that steady stream of nutrients and energy coming in. Um, I also think it's a better way to go to avoid any issues with food, meaning if you're just focusing on weekly macros and things are flying up and down, you're being overly flexible, you're, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul too often, things like that, I think you're going to have an issue with your relationship with food. And I think it could essentially create a negative relationship with food and, and you don't want to do that. So um, yeah, my opinion is daily macros for sure. And that's also going to ensure that your performance and recovery in the gym is a hell of a lot better. Because again, we go back to the fact that your energy coming in is more consistent. Your nutrients coming in are more consistent. And your body doesn't have to play this catch-up game or guessing work. Um, and again, I think you're just going to have a better relationship with food. And so in the long run, I think it's just better for health, performance, recovery, and your mind if you focus on daily macros. And then every once in a while, you be flexible enough to Kind of like, again, like Saturday nights, I go out with my wife. I don't even track. Sunday, I usually do a little bit intermittent fasting, way more protein. Actually, not more protein. Um, just less carbs and fats and just more protein in the morning just to keep me satiated. And I'm totally fine doing that. It's a little bit of Rob Peter to pay Paul, but it's a healthy balance to where I still get to enjoy my life on Saturday. And it's not too much where it's creating a negative relationship with food where I go and binge afterwards. Um, so I do think – I think – from a scientific perspective, like technically there's not a difference um, from a weight loss perspective, but from a fat loss perspective, meaning muscle growth, pure fat loss, health, the mindset behind nutrition, performance, recovery, strength, stuff like that. In long term, we're not just looking at a short study. I do think there is a difference and I think daily macros are better. All right, last question. Carmen Alessa, carb front or back loading? Which one for what kind of scenario? Um, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. If your weekly caloric intake kind of checks out, like I just mentioned, you're going to be fine. So, or I should say your daily caloric intake, it doesn't matter if you carb front or load or back load. Studies have shown that it doesn't matter. In fact, in some scenarios for performance and muscle growth, I would argue that research would allude to the fact that steady streams of protein and carbs throughout the day versus carb backloading or frontloading is actually probably better because there's a relationship with protein and carb when consumed together um, with muscle protein synthesis, insulin spiking, cortisol dropping, uh, growth hormone spiking, like that's going to be beneficial for staying anabolic and consistently building muscle. So I actually like a steady amount of carbs coming through the day. The only time I ever carb front or back load is if somebody is intermittent fasting, somebody's goal is purely fat loss, and we don't have a ton of carbs to play with. Or we have a lot of carbs to play with, and I just tend to be a little heavier post-workout, which is common. But um, I would front load carbs in a fat loss scenario where somebody is training early in the morning and I would carb back load in a fat loss scenario where somebody's training in the evening. That's basically the gist of it. If anybody is maintaining, focusing on performance or muscle growth, I'm probably going to have even split of protein carbs throughout the day with very small amounts of carb cycling um, throughout the week and or day, um, more so the type of carbs and probably dropping fats to ensure better digestion and speed and rate of absorption for those carbs um, and possibly just like higher glycemic carbs and maybe a little bit more carbs pre and post-workout, uh, but not a ton of carb front or back load because all meals would have carbs. And then the only th other thing I would mention here is that there are some studies that actually show um, that have been done with like time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting groups that kind of dive in deeper with like nutrient timing and they show like positive benefits with the circadian rhythm, uh, fat loss, metabolism, stuff like that when carbs are actually eaten earlier in the day. And it makes sense given that the cortisol response is earlier in the day. It's, it's greater earlier in the day. 
Um, and that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. So there are some good studies that show like bigger meals. And this is where the caveat is, is like, okay, was it because they had more carbs in the morning or was it because they had more calories in the morning? And there's a lot of researchers that would argue that it's really just that there's more calories in the morning. So it actually might be better um, to flip intermittent fasting on its head, meaning I eat first thing in the morning. Um, I eat my biggest meal of the day first thing in the morning and I actually stop eating earlier in the day so that my fast is now from 6 p.m. to 8 a.m. versus 10 p.m. to 2 p.m., right? So we all we do want to eat in the morning and we want a bigger calorie meal um, and it's more about having our food eaten earlier, which is funny because like the whole myth of like you can eat before bed and you can because calories control that. But now there's some researchers pointing out that it might actually be beneficial to give yourself a couple hours before. Um, and, I, and I do think this is majoring in the minor. Uh, calories total come first always. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, I, I think carb backloading, carb frontloading, um, unless it's peak week, I, I don't see a ton of validity in it. The only time I ever use it is purely from an adherence standpoint. Um, if somebody's in a fat loss phase and we don't have enough carbs to spread them out throughout the day, because if I spread them out throughout the day, they're eating a 20 gram carb, which is like no rice. Like I'd rather them have one meal with a bunch of rice because it's more satiating. It's going to fuel their performance a little bit better and they're just going to adhere to it better. But that's really what it comes down to. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.